You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Good morning, Bobo. How you doing? All right, Cliff. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Just uh, I'm working at the museum today. Um, Connor's downstairs taking the helm for me while I'm up here doing the podcast. It's a beautiful rainy day, which uh, Oregon has needed for a while now because of all the wildfires. Yeah, we got a little bit of rain, but nothing like they said we were going to. No, oh, it rained real hard last night. It woke me up, actually. So I was pretty thrilled about that. Yeah, we had a squall come through about 4 a.m. woke me up. Mm-hmm. Anything exciting going down there in Humboldt? No, everything's pretty locked down. I'm, I got to get on the road here next week. So I'm uh, trying to quarantine pretty, you know, a little more than usual. Gotcha. Gotcha. Can you tell us about the travel or is that top secret right now? Much like uh, our guest today, it's going to be top secret. Okay. Top secret Bobo travels. And then one more question about your uh, situation on there. How is Monkey doing? Dude, last week again, we thought she was a goner. She just couldn't breathe for a couple nights and was miserable, which she couldn't walk anywhere. We called the vet again. Sure enough, before the vet can even call back, she gets up, eats two bowls of food, drinks about a gallon of water, and goes and takes a big poop, and she's trying to play for hours. Doesn't sound like a bad day to me. And she's been good since. And then we took her in uh, Friday yesterday to the vet, and the vet was shocked. She goes, she is the biggest bounce back dog I've ever seen. Well, you are what you eat, and she eats a lot of bouncy balls. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, I have a pretty great guest. Uh, we've been trying to get this woman on for quite some time. Um, and of course, I think you, you've hung out with her too, I believe. I mean, you guys know each other, but uh, I don't think our audience knows her. Um, but she's definitely a name that I think will be appearing on people's radars over the next few years. Um, she's got a number of cryptozoological sort of projects going. Um, and it's not often, but it's not often enough. We get to have a legitimate PhD on the show. So this is a, a kind of an exciting episode for us. Um, so everybody out there, um, please welcome Dr. Shay Conger. She's a marine biologist. Um, she's interested in cryptozoology and even other weirder stuff, but she is well grounded in science and has a couple projects um, that haven't been released yet, but we'll be talking to her about her wide variety of interests. So Shay, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond. Hey, Cliff and Bobo. How are you guys doing? Good. Hi, Shay. Relatively well, if not better. Thanks for coming on the show today. Um, I, we've been trying to get you on here for a while, but scheduling and fires and calamities and Armageddon and everything else that's been happening lately has kind of uh, gotten in our way. So I'm glad you can make the time today. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, it's strange. Uh, in an apocalypse situation, we appear to not slow down at all. You would think we do, but that has not happened. Yeah, and I personally thought the apocalypse would be a lot more fun than this, man. <laughs> Yeah, it's been kind of a disappointment. No, I was expecting like Mad Max and cool stuff like that, you know, but like, no, it's like, I got to wear a mask and stay inside, you know, and, and hope my house doesn't burn down. Yeah, that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> Lame, right? Well, anyway, let's jump into sort of some stuff here. Um, now, now, Shay, I've known you for years and I actually met you at a Bigfoot event. Um, you came out um, to Sasquatch Brewery all those many years ago and listened to me babble about some, pro some thing that I was dealing with at the time. So um, it, what got you interested in cryptozoology? Because you're a biologist by trade, um, but cryptozoology specifically, like, what does that mean to you? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm definitely a biologist. I guess I'm also just a weird nerd. Um, and... Uh, yeah, yeah. It all went downhill, I think, when I was about three years old. And uh, my mom was a teacher for many years. And I, re I started reading at a pretty early level when I was like three or four. Um, and the first books I distinctly remember reading were uh, little kids books on the Loch Ness Monster, the Yeti and uh, Bigfoot. And um, I still have those, actually. And I was lucky enough to have um, Dr. John B uh, Bendernagel signed my Bigfoot one a few years back. So um, I don't know. I just always, I grew up in Wyoming and it's best to kind of conform. Um, but I was the kid that checked out the like five 
ghosty books over and over and over again at the library. Um, and I've always just kind of loved, I think, the storytelling aspect of cryptozoology as well. You know, I do it because it's a fun break and I get to exercise the other side of my brain. And I just love the stories and I love the spookiness. So this is my favorite season when the rain sets in and everything gets a little spookier and there's pumpkins everywhere. So I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of that way by nature. And, uh, you know, I would say it's a combination of using critical thinking from my science background, but also kind of just shutting that side of my brain off and realizing that, you know, cryptozoology is also just about the people and people's experiences. So I think that's what I like about it. You know, your early years probably uh, um, mirrored Bobo's and mine in some ways, because I know that Bobo and I were both the, the, the weird kids in the library checking these books out. And and for whatever it's worth, we also peaked at three years old and it's been downhill ever since. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I, I peaked a long time ago. <laughs> you know, what's funny is uh, at the Humboldt State University Library, they had a bunch of like Bigfoot books and, you know, like Ivan Sanderson and all that. And I was the first person to check it out since Danny Perez, like six years earlier. Oh, that's cool. That's <laughs> yeah. really cool. But, you know, um, cryptozoology, you know, and, and people always think, oh, Loch Ness, Bigfoot, blah, blah, blah. But really, at the end of the day, it's the identification of species that haven't been classified yet. So it seems right up your alley. Yeah, for sure. And I think you could extend that further to um, identification of species that we think are no longer, you know, viable. Um, for example, the Tasmanian tiger, um, and those types of species that there is a probability they still, still may be out there and people still do report seeing them. But, um, according to science, they, they are no longer with us, which is quite sad. You're dealing with a podcast of learned men, Shay. We call them thylacines around here. Oh yes. Sorry. Sorry. Thylacines. Yes. Now we're going to be all over the place because you know me and like, I don't follow a train of thought for very long. My train of thoughts get derailed quite easily. Um, But uh, you just mentioned something like the rediscovery of species that we knew exists. And you brought up the thylacine, of course, and the coelacanth is like the poster child for that thing, of course. Um, Now, when comparable to things that are are previously unknown, like Sasquatches, for example, um, do does science require the same level of proof for something that we know was real, but we think is extinct, like a thylacine, versus that of a Sasquatch, like a body or a big part of the body for the Sasquatch would be necessary. But would that same level of proof be needed for something like the, the thylacine? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, big question for a Saturday. Let me think on that. So I would say yes. and. Something that I I try to keep in mind and and communicate to folks, you know, when we cross into this, you know, science won't accept what's going on and scientists are a bunch of stuck up, whatever, you know, I I have a different perspective on that being in the field. And, And the first thing I would say is that science is not what you would call particularly lucrative. And in many cases, uh, faculty at universities have to provide 50% or more of their own salary through grants. And, um, you know, I often ask my question, myself the question, you know, when is a job stop actually being a job? Um, because there's even universities now that are hiring people entirely on their own soft money, meaning that they will hire you if you can provide your own salary. Um, that combined with dwindling funds for science, um, a lot of competition, you know, people are stretched pretty thin. Many colleagues I know work 70 or 80 hours a week on a regular basis just to maintain their jobs. So as you might expect, there's probably not a whole lot of people leaping to, you know, talk about discovering Bigfoot, etc. Even if there is interest there, you know, as a as a side thing, but not only because um, of the high competitiveness of the field and wanting to maintain your name, but there's a big risk there that you won't find anything and, and and much less even get funded. Um, so I think that's the divide that we see between science and things like the paranormal or cryptozoology. Yes, there are a lot of people that thinks it, think it's all hooey and ridiculous, but you know, people are really just trying to do their best to maintain their careers. 
Um, I think the second thing I would say to that is, you know, science is based, the scientific method itself is based on repeatability. You form a hypothesis, you apply a treatment to a situation, and in theory, anyone who uses your methods should get the same results. So as you can imagine, it, it's challenging for me to hop on board, especially with the paranormal. And I would say in particular with the paranormal, people who want to apply science to that situation um, because they don't really have the right tools to do so. And as we all know, weird things happen and they're very rarely repeatable. So in order to prove that a house is haunted, you would have to be able to perform some sort of an action over and over and get the same result. Um, and so I think it's the same thing with cryptozoology, right? You're based on people's experiences. Uh, we don't know all, everything about what goes on, uh, with these types of animals. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions in regards to how they live, et cetera, um, if they are out there. And so it's, it's difficult to apply science. And I think that in order to I think we all need to remember that we should just enjoy uh, the whole the whole scheme of talking to people, um, learning about their experiences, trying to collect evidence. But that pressure to get science to accept something has got to be taken off. And um, if the right thing comes along, it will. But I think that's kind of a lost endeavor, if that makes sense. It's hard to experiment on things that are so rare and unpredictable as Sasquatches. Um, now, no, no, you, you mentioned pr uh, repeatability being a key factor in the scientific method. Um, when it comes to wildlife, though, um, wildlife are un unpredictable at best, and they are under no obligation to um, do anything that we think they should do. Um, and let's just use uh, Sasquatches as an example. Um, if, if we have this hypothesis that most people do, that Sasquatches uh, do wood knocks, um, is there a way or maybe a, a number or a threshold that would be reached under normal field circumstances where one can say, oh, yeah, it is repeatable. It's just that it's 3% of the time. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um, and I will agree, it's often frustrating that wildlife never does what you would like it to. They seem to, it's like they have their own, a mind of their own. Um, <laughs> yeah, they don't seem to care about me, I'll tell you that. I know, yeah. It's, what it's, about my feelings? Yeah, hmm. exactly. Um, so, uh, no, I absolutely agree. I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, what you would, you know, the other issue I think that makes it difficult, you know, trying to push, uh, for example, the wood knoxes. Um, something that a you know a scientist would sit down and look at is you would have to um, make sure that you know the right causative factor. So if you were able to spend months and months, like many people do, um, in an area on a property and really establish a set of behavior, um, I think that does count as good evidence. But then I think you always are going to end up with those roadblocks, um, as I mentioned before, that kind of social financial factors. Um, it's not that people aren't interested. It's just that they're, um, everyone in science is quite overly cautious all of the time. Well, and they should be, and they, they absolutely should be. I've noticed that when, uh, talking to Meldrum a lot is that he's very conservative in everything he says. And, um, and you, I, is there some level of maybe not envy, but of like going, Hmm, maybe, um, uh, uh, hold, uh, like holding him as an example for someone like yourself, who's legitimately qualified. Um, they say, well, you can do it. And Jeff's a good model for that. Or man, or oh, man, I wish I could get away with something like that. Or like, how do you feel about that? Oh, yeah, I'm sure that those sentiments are out there for sure. And I've definitely seen colleagues at these types of conferences and uh, who were like shocked that <laughs> to recognize somebody. Um, so I think that is the case. And, and I think something about being a scientist that I've found has been, it, it can be frustrating is that we're taught everything we say or do um, is very intentional, very deliberate, very well thought out. And I, I think that's very evident, for example, when you see kind of the losing fight of like science in, in America in particular right now, everyone else is willing to yell and make claims and, you know, who can shout the loudest and, and really a scientist, um, you know, we are taught to always be deliberate in how we respond to things. So people, you know, might be afraid too of looking more into these things be just because of that ang constant anxiety that you have to 
hold yourself up in, in the peer circle, if that makes sense. Oh, there are so many other uh, mental and social blocks to investigating unknown things. Um, and, I, you know, actually, you mentioned um, Bindernagel earlier, uh, John Bindernagel, mm-hmm. who's passed away in a few years now. Um, he wrote an excellent book. His second book, The Discovery of the Sasquatch, is almost as much a, a treatise on, um, on scientific philosophy as it is the animal itself. Um, have you read that one, Shay? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, his work is phenomenal. and. You know, I'd have to say meeting him, he was one of the most wonderful, um, kind, and just intelligent people and passionate that I've really ever met. I think the other interesting to think, uh, thing to think about is um, science as we know it, as, you know, science as I practice it, is a very westernized conception. Uh, the whole scientific method, that, that's very westernized. And, you know, you'll find in other parts of the world where knowledge is just as valid and and perhaps those voices are a little quieter, there's a a much bigger blur between traditional knowledge and um, relationships with nature and experiential science. So we've really, I don't want to say we've been brainwashed, but we often forget that there are other forms of knowledge in the world because we are so focused on this structure of, of the scientific method and so I think that's another kind of hitching point for a lot of us in the scientific field is that it's not, unfortunately, it's often not as respected to look at science in that way. I think the really cool thing is that's changing. There's a big push for working with communities instead of just dropping in and taking your data and leaving. Um, and there's a big push for incorporating traditional ecological knowledge into what we do, because all of that was a form of science. And it was a form of the human ability to survive and observe patterns. And and that's why we're still here as a species. Yeah, when you were saying that, actually, uh, first, you said worldwide, but what what you described to me reminded me of indigenous people in North America, how their traditional wisdom and knowledge um, is very scientific, you know, in, in a lot of ways, but it's just, it's perhaps clothed in a different robe you know whereas um in our western like the dominant western sort of culture that we're all you know subject to um it just kind of just shows that like it's really a a culture in general is kind of not your friend it's kind of there to tell you how to think about things and what you can and can't do and what is real and what's not whereas there's so many other ways to look at stuff you know and i think that indigenous cultures and indigenous wisdom like that whether it's worldwide or right here on our continent um is valid in a lot of ways and, and, you know, in every way to, to the people in that culture, of course, but valuable outside of the culture as well. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the way to think of it is our, our brains are, are supercomputers. Think of everything that you take in, in a single second, you know, from sights to sell, sell smells to sounds to patterns. And we somehow miraculously um, have evolved to make really quick decisions based on that, that feeds into our survival. Um, there's even some theory that uh, the, I, the fact that we observe time linearly is purely a biological construct, evolutionary, at kind of the microbial level. Um, because if we didn't, it would all be too much. We couldn't survive through space and time. Um, so a lot of how our brains work and how we think our brains work are, are very different. And science is really great in that it does help you see um, through that a little bit. For example, it's really fantastic for collecting large amounts of data and applying statistics to it in a way that you get a clear answer without um, kind of observational bias. But again, we don't, we don't really understand entirely how our brains work, etc., um, how the natural world actually works. And so that's the other downfall of science where uh, it can create a very narrow perspective, if that makes sense. Well, I think it does. I, I, I often say in podcasts and whatnot, the, well, I, I, try, I literally define science for people when I do presentations, meaning this not a body of knowledge that's protected. It's actually a method. It shouldn't like science to me is almost like a verb, right? But uh, second of all, it, it, science is a tool. It's a tool. And like any other tool, it's really, really good at a couple things and really lousy at a lot of others. Um, the science can tell you, you know, um, 
Newtonian physics, like it's really good at that kind of thing, these predictable models and whatnot. But it completely falls apart when you're talking about love, for example. You know, and love is a real thing. We all experience it, right? But science is not the tool for that. And there are many other things that science is almost useless for. Um, and it should be treated like any other tool. You know, you aren't going to go banging a hammer with the, with the butt end of a screwdriver very effectively. You use the right tool for the right job. And science is great at a couple of those things. And a couple of those things are, you know, not so much. Yeah. And that's actually, it's funny. That's the same analogy I use is, you know, trying to use a hammer to, to put a screw in a wall. Um, you know, and that is one of my bigger frustrations, I will say, um, usually by day two of, you know, some of these conferences and, you know, a lot of it is I really go to hang out with just a bunch of nerds who are a little strange like me. Um, but you know, we're no, we're no schmucks. I mean, there's rocket engineers, there's, uh, detectives, there's, uh, novelists, I mean, really smart people who are in these communities. And uh, the first time I kind of stepped into the, I remember that first time I went to when you were presenting, I was actually terrified about who I was going to find <laughs> at this meeting. And I brought a friend just because of that. And it was like, oh, no, it's just just regular, super nice people. Um, but I think one of my bigger frustrations, uh, like I said, is, you know, if you get to day two of, for example, a ghost conference, people start trying to explain quantum physics as a way to explain paranormal behavior, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of arm waving. And so for example, at a scientific conference, you would be, you must be a hundred percent prepared to answer any question anyone poses of you. Um, if you start arm waving, then, I mean, you're going to get programs thrown at you, you know, it, it, it doesn't work, but, um, it can be a little bit dangerous, you know, when people don't understand what they're trying to point to and really nobody does. I mean, we don't understand how the quantum world works at all, um, much less how that would apply to anything beyond the molecular scale, um, or atomic scale. Um, and so it's, it is a little challenging to watch people try and, and use that as an explanation because it could be completely wrong and we will never know. It's like uh, trying to explain one unknown with another, even though quantum mechanics is mathematically somewhat known the, uh, I find very often the people describing it don't have a complete understanding of the mathematics. No, it's very theoretical. Um, and by the way, Cliff, do you know why you should never trust an atom? Mm, maybe. <laughs> Tell me, please, why should I never trust an atom? Well, they make up everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know I've always got to put a nerdy joke in there, but... Well, you, you can see why she's my friend, Bose. Yeah. <laughs> that was Cliff all the way. Yeah. Shay did, I, Shay, did I tell you that I just got done reading a book about frogs? No. It was riveting. Oh, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'll get off my scientific platform here. But um, those are just some thoughts, you know, and that's why I, I do these things particularly because they're fun and I enjoy them. And, um, you know, sometimes thinking too hard sucks the fun out of it. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means insane props, epic bonuses, and the craziest cross-sport wagers. At my bookie, winning season means watching live sports and betting live sports all season long. Rejoice! Rejoice! The NFL is returned. That means action-packed Sundays and huge cash prizes. Get in on the action. Use promo code BIGFOOT and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play. Designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. Bet with the best this NFL season for your chance to win big. Use promo code BIGFOOT and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. Breaking up with your old wireless provider just got a whole lot easier thanks to Mint Mobile. They were the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, and now Mint Mobile is introducing their unlimited plan for just 30 bucks a month. Let that sink in a minute. An unlimited plan for 30 bucks. How much is your soon-to-be ex-wireless provider charging you? I was paying over $100 a month, but now 30 bucks a month, that's a big savings. 
Dude, it's going to save me almost $90 a month. And for people that hate their phone bill and are ready to cut ties with big wireless, Mint Mobile offers their premium unlimited plan for just 30 bucks a month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings on to you and me. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. Break up with Big Wireless and switch to Mint Mobile's premium unlimited data plan for 30 bucks a month. To get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 30 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/bigfoot. That's mintmobile.com/bigfoot. Cut your unlimited wireless bill to 30 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/bigfoot. Well, let's jump into some cryptids in general, and uh, maybe we can do that, Bobs. How do you think? Like, we throw a cryptid at her, and she gives us some thoughts on it? Well, yeah, I know she's a marine biologist, so what about sea serpents? That's a hard one to answer, uh, because the historical sightings of those fall into a lot of categories. Um, So some of them seem pretty obviously explainable, you know, in terms of, oh, marine mammals or oceanographic phenomenon. Some seem just extremely strange uh, and maybe implausible, but others you can't explain very easily. Um, You know, and you have to be careful about the whole yellow journalism thing, you know, back in the day when people, man, it would have been so great to be a journalist back then. It would have been so fun because you just, you kind of come up with a crazy story and spin it and that's your center column or whatever. Um, But you know, I think it's definitely plausible. I think there's very large species of things like eels, etc. Um, the giant and colossal squids are absolutely real, and we know very little about them. Um, and they're pretty, pretty fascinating and can be quite aggressive as well. So, you know, I don't know. I love, I would love for sea serpents to be real. I think in particular, the reports of like the horse headed animals are really compelling because I can't really draw an analogy to that. But the ones that are just, you know, kind of above the water ripples that it's hard to break that down without having more information. Right. Now, did you, you, uh, did you pay attention to that story? I, I'm, God, my, my sense of time has become so elastic as I grow older, but I think it was about a year ago or so. Um, the guys who did the, uh, the team, I should say, um, uh, who did the eDNA study of Loch Ness, mm-hmm. and they found an inordinate amount of eel DNA. Was that, do- was that Dr. Adrian Shine? Is that correct? No, no, no. He's the guy that lives out there. Uh, this is a guy, from, I, God, I think he's from New Zealand. I know Meldrum is, is in touch with him. Oh, well, okay. So yeah, I know I actually was following that study and they put another article out uh, a few days ago, I think. No, really? I didn't catch that one. Yeah. So I think there was a sighting and then um, some more DNA analysis, but yeah, I think that's totally plausible. Um, you know, and the interesting about thing about Loch Ness too is, you know, being a marine mammal biologist, one thing I know is that they're quite crafty. So uh, it's totally possible, and I think it's been documented that sometimes seals do make their way all up, all the way up there. Um, they'll travel hundreds of miles up rivers, um, just kind of usually younger males, kind of just bopping around to see what they can find. And I'm sure if they don't find any food, they head out again. So that would be one of those things you would see it and then it would leave and you would never see it again. So that could explain some of the sightings. Yeah. And Bobo, you were there with me in Inverness um, uh, while we were shooting the UK finding Bigfoot episode. So Bobo and I got to go to Loch Ness and kind of goof around there and do some stuff there and meet Adrian Scheib, by the way. But um, I think it's only seven miles from the loch to the ocean. It's close. Yeah. And I mean, people don't realize it, but um, in New Zealand, for example, there's a population of sea lions there, or maybe they're they're fur seals, I think. And it's so interesting. The moms actually take the babies upriver quite a ways. um, And these little baby sea lions nurse and grow in the forest. And um, there's actually, you can look up photos of them climbing trees, et cetera, but they're in this like little secret oasis until they get big enough to really defend themselves, at which point uh, the mom takes them back out to the ocean. So they do some weird stuff. 
I had no idea about that. That's cool. I never heard of that. That is cool. I would love to see it in person. I'll see if I can find some photos for you guys. Um, I only learned about it a couple of years ago and it just blew my mind. So after, so besides just sea serpents, what about these lake serpents and, and river serpents in particular? I, I think the, I personally think they're, they're related. I think they're probably the same animal since, you know, they seem to follow the salmon runs and all that sort of stuff. What do you know anything about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, um, it could be a combo. I have seen some cases in the Great Lakes, for example, that um, I'm pretty sure people were seeing sturgeon. And sturgeon are incredible fish that can live for a very long time. And they look very, very strange. um, And they get very big. Uh, So I think that's a possibility. Um, But Cliff, you know, I think you and I have had the same experiences where we've heard stories of these really dark kind of larger eels uh in the river systems and i actually have also heard uh from folks in the area about that so you know i don't know what what they are um or what if they're large species of lamprey or something um but yeah what's what what kind of background do you have on those critters well i mean uh i first ran across i mean stories of them from witnesses when i was filming uh um monster quest with bobo back in 2008 on the klamath river uh i i think during that one four day shoot i talked to three witnesses who had seen those things and and uh, ecology is there they say oh yeah they come up in salmon years and like we haven't had a good salmon year so no one's seen one for a while and i think bobo Phil, jump in here cuz didn't you say that somebody saw one just a couple years after we were there Oh yeah, there's several sightings. Yeah, and, and they're kind of uniform in description. One woman, I remember uh, this woman named Margaret. I asked her, "You ever seen a Sasquatch?" She goes, "No, I've seen those river serpents." So, and I go, "What?" And she, she told us two different stories. And and she lives on the river, off grid. Um, you can't drive to her house. There's no roads. Or just you know, you have to take a boat there and follow a trail. So that's the kind of person I would expect to know exactly what lives in the river. Yeah. And I guess, you know, my thing is like, what, what's the point in lying or making, you know, there's just no, there's no end game to that. Um, but you know, that's something I'd like to to think about more. And, you know, and I think, I think that falls into the category too, where, you know, there used to be a lot more salmon, uh, in the Pacific Northwest and the numbers have, have, have really dwindled. So, um, something like that, that was dependent on large salmon runs, for example, may just not have the signal to go up river anymore. Yeah. And when you look at, um, and I, I bring this up often as well, when you talk about these things, when you look at the prevalence of these kinds of stories, these river serpents, and even the lake monsters to a large degree, they fall into a certain, um, they fall into a certain latitude. And it's generally here, nor- like northern latitudes, essentially. I don't know anything about southern latitudes. Maybe they're down there too. But, you know, like from the central part of California to Alaska, you get stories of these things. And it turns out Loch Ness is exactly in that same zone. Um, Lake Iliamna up in Alaska has a, something living in it supposedly and the Eel River down in California the Klamath is where I first started hearing about these things Bobo's taking stories out of uh, what, the Queets I think and Queets and Ho the Queets and the Ho yeah see that's part of that repeatability right um, you know yeah you don't hear stories about black eels down in the Caribbean um, so I think it's really compelling and I you know I think when I think about when I start exercising my, you know, biologist brain for cryptids, something like that is completely feasible where, you know, if someone's trying to tell me there's a plesiosaur in a lake somewhere, I mean, first of all, the timeline doesn't match, but they were, they were saltwater animals, you know? So the fact that there may be a lone plesiosaur living in a lake um, without a population is very unlikely to me. Um, So there's a sliding scale when I kind of think about these, these reports. Well, and, and also plesiosaurs being reptiles would breathe air. And I, I, I just can't help but think that if they, if these things were dinosaurs or whatever, then you would be seeing them a lot more often. Yeah, exactly. In fact, just yesterday, I burst a five-year-old's bubble about that. Oh, man. So I, have no, I have no mercy on the youth. That was a teacher. Oh, that's funny. Did you make him cry, Cliff? <laughs> he didn't cry. He didn't cry. But, so I should try harder next time. Good work. Great work. You didn't, yeah. didn't do it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should always smash a child's dreams if you can. <laughs> do it early. Yep. Crush it while you can. All right. What's another cryptid, Bobes? Mermaids. Yeah, that's my favorite. So <laughs> I hate those. 
Yeah, I think part of it is that I just have really long, unruly hair. So I, I, I get it. And I, you know, talking about mermaids too, you know, I think the fact that they're depicted as, as these creatures with this really long, crazy hair to me is a red flag because that would be in your face all the time. It would just be a nightmare. It'd be caught in kelp and, you know, you wouldn't be able to see. So, you know, I don't think evolutionarily that makes very much sense. Um, there's also a number of things about mermaids that, that don't make biological sense to me. Um, but what is interesting about them is their persistence in myth. So, um, you know, the, the first mermaid kind of God was back in, um, all the way back to like Macedonia and those have persisted and the nature of mermaids, uh, tend to be kind of a malevolent trickster. Uh, you see them in history as harpies and sirens and kelpies and selkies. And, uh, they're really globally prevalent. Um, and, and so one of my favorite topic or things about mermaids is I think they really represent our relationship with the sea and having spent time at sea several weeks at a time, it's not that fun. Um, especially, you know, thinking back when you're not on a 21st century vessel with a salad bar, uh, I don't think it was that great to be on a whaling ship for 200 days at a time eating hardtack and being covered in whale oil uh, and soot. So, yeah, and I'm, I imagine with the amount of whiskey, et cetera, that was drunk because that was one of the ways to keep uh, water because you couldn't drink salt water. I'm sure you were hung over a fair amount of the time also. So, um, you know, sitting around and telling stories about creepy things was probably a really great way to get by. Creepy things and sexy fish. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, just a, it's a just classic, you know, like if you were to put people on a boat and ask them to tell stories, that's, that's what you would get. But, you know, there's really not a lot of evolutionary components to what we see a mermaid as that are, viable. Um, if there were mermaids, what you would expect to see are they would have to have some form of blubber, a lot of it, because their bodies aren't covered in hair. Uh, their limbs would probably be really short and stubby. Um, they certainly wouldn't have a neck, so it would be kind of a fusiform, ugly blob. Uh, Basically a, 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 a harbor seal. It essentially would be a seal, you know? So, I mean, when I break it down, it's like, oh, well, you end up with a marine mammal. So and it's not because you're biased because you study harbor seals, is it? No, but, you know, I, I <laughs> you know, but any, it would be any marine mammal, a whale, et cetera, because there are a number of rules that you have to adhere to if you want to survive in the ocean. Um, because water just sucks body heat. Um, and to be a mammal, you would have to have some way of insulating yourself and maintaining that, that body energy. So, um, a skinny little mermaid just doesn't fit in that, even in, even in tropical waters. So, uh, along the lines of mermaids, you've seen the little mermaid, the Disney version, I assume. Right. Tell me about the biological feasibility of Ursula. Oh, that's a great one. Well, I'll, I'll start off and say, uh, you know, the original little mermaid was pretty dark. And, uh, was it a Hans Christian Andersen thing? Yeah. 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 He was like Stephen King or like the, the, the gnarly writing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was quite gnarly. And, uh, yeah, that's a, it's actually a great Halloween read. Um, man, Ursula's, I guess she'd be more, <laughs> she'd be more, uh, biologically likely, but you know, this is kind of funny. I haven't thought of it. Um, the one red flag for her is animals don't have different forms of symmetry within one organism. So a lot of animals that we're accustomed to have bilateral symmetry, uh, things like sea stars or sea cucumbers, uh, the echinoderms, they have pentaradial symmetry, meaning they're actually on five axes. So if you think of a, a sea star, it has five arms usually. Um, or then you have the octopus, which doesn't conform to like any other creature on the planet. Um, so the fact that she's like human and octopus on the bottom, uh, that doesn't, doesn't jam, but <laughs> pretty cool. But I, I'd like to think you've never been asked that before, by the way. I haven't. So that, that's, what's fun about it. You get to explore, you know, crazy thoughts. Nice. I'm a pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. All right. Well, okay. Well, what about um, Sasquatches or any other sort of unknown hominoid? Yeah. You hang out with me. So I know you're probably a little biased and you've been exposed to a lot of the good evidence too. Yeah. Well, and I'll have to say, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to move to the Pacific Northwest was that kind of creepy woods vibe. And I remember the first time I drove here, I was like, oh, this is where Bigfoot is. Like, I made it. (laughs) So, um, you know, and it's funny because there are sightings in Wyoming, but uh, especially when I was there growing up, you don't talk about weird things. Um, I actually had a a small little ghost club when I was a kid and some of the kids' moms were like, oh, we can't, we can't be doing that because that's probably satanic. So um, that was a dwindling group. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think uh, the most interesting kind of unknown hominid is that orang pindak in Sumatra. And the reason I think that's really interesting is because you have orangutans there and people have seen them, and yet people still um, swear that there's another upright bipedal style of um, an orangutan there. And that, to me, makes more biological sense because there's already a precedent for a very similar species. Um, And then when you look at humans, we evolved to be bipedal to some degree uh, over time, although we still seem to be pretty clumsy. But you know, I think that's, that's really compelling to me. And that's really interesting. And Cliff, I know, you know, scientists that have also seen these animals. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, um, and they have a lot to say about uh, what they've seen. Uh, one guy in particular saw one in the Marble Mountains, and I had a great conversation via email with him going back and forth. And he was telling me what their diet should be based on what he observed. You know, like the thick jaws and the, the the muscles and the zygomatic arches and things like that. Um, he was saying, so, "Well, they have to be this. They they shouldn't be." And I said, "Well, you know, they they've been observed eating this and that." And they go, "I don't know about that because what I saw was clearly a chewer, you know." And say, I don't think they'd be eating meat at all. And I said, "Well, I, they do. I, I can pretty much guarantee that." So it was a really interesting conversation talking to somebody who knew far more than me. He was a PhD in biology, much like yourself, you know, uh, but he uh, knew far more than me about a lot of like a lot of this stuff. I just had more experience in the Bigfoot thing. So I had something to offer him as well, which is kind of a lot of fun. Well, you know, and that's that's why we say in science and everything else, like it's important to have these conversations. Uh, there's a lot of people in the Bigfoot world. I'm sure you haven't noticed, but they get pretty defensive <laughs> about their theories mm. um, or beliefs. And, you know, again, that's. You know, if you're if you're a scientist, sure you can you can really back something that you've been working on. But you know, there is no like, oh well, I don't like what you're saying, so I'm just not going to talk to you or like let you look at what I'm doing. I mean, there, <laughs> you don't get your spinner new wheels at that point. Um, but I think something you know on that note, Cliff, is even the most kind of like herbaceous animals will eat meat. Um, deer will eat meat. Um, you know, almost any animal because food is hard to get out there. And, you know, it's like, it's like my chickens, you know, they, they spend a lot of time eating bugs, but if there was a mouse that got in that chicken coop, they would devour it. Dinosaurs. I know they are tiny dinosaurs. Um, it's pretty fun to look at them that way, but. A lot of the, they're all the reason I don't trust birds. Yeah. I think we have an evolutionary reason to be a little scared of them for sure. And I think, uh, you know, it is interesting there is the whole Thunderbird phenomenon, which there's a very different view of what that animal is from the Native American perspective to, you know, the spectrum of what you hear people reporting in terms of just giant birds. And part of me is, wonders if that little tiny, you know, we evolved from these tiny little marsupial mammals that everything ate. And I think at some point your brain your little marsupial brain triggers and things look a lot more big and terrifying than they are. Um, I've had a great horn owl swoop over my car in the middle of the night. And that was the, that was one of the scariest experiences of my life. He, you know, his wingspan was the entire, entire vehicle and you don't realize how huge they are. Yeah. A lot of people experience that in the vicinity of Bobo being, he's just a lot bigger and scarier than they realize, you know, used to be. Yeah. Well, you know, you're what, six, four. And I always say you're about seven, seven and a half when you wear your personality. I'm down to six three now, like six three and a quarter or something. Uh oh, shrinkage. Yeah, 
It's been cold. <laughs> I'll be able to look you in the eye in a few years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bobs. What's another one? Giant ground sloth. Oh yeah. Um, well, first off, did you guys? I think you. I think I think I sent it to you that they found a totally intact cave bear. Oh, I, I, I know about it. It's been all over the news, right? Yeah. So cool. Can you even, I can't even imagine what, what it must've been like to be the person that found that. I would, I would have lost it. Cause I, I really have a big fascination with those big Pleistocene mammals, um, like mammoths, et cetera. Yeah. The giant ground sloth. I mean, absolutely. I, you know, there, there's a lot of amazing megafauna in North America in particular. And Sometimes we take that for granted. We don't think about how cool the wildlife is here. But I guess I don't know if I feel like it's still around. Um, in particular, because it's a pretty friendly giant animal, I think humans would have just eaten it. That's the case for these big birds called, I think, moai in New Zealand. Yeah. And I mean, they just, they call them walking meat lockers. And I mean, <laughs> I'm scared of ostriches. I'm sure they weren't that friendly, but man, did we eat the heck out of them. Now they're gone. So that's, that's my take on that. <laughs> That'd be so cool. Those birds are still around. I know. I can't even imagine. Yeah. I'm really all about the whole, like bringing back place to scene species. Um, I'd spend a lot of time at that facility if they had a zoo or something. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Like, I know there's perhaps some moral questions involved, but, you know, I don't know. Morals, morality can be a little subjective, I suppose. And how cool would that be to see a mammoth? Yeah, it'd be worth it. Or a cave bear. Or, you know, along those lines with the discovery of that, uh, the discovery of the uh, cave bear corpse, because it's basically a corpse, um, people are now saying, well, wouldn't it be cool if eventually we discover a Neanderthal in the same, in the same state? Well, you just creep me out there, man. I just like, my stomach dropped. I was like, that that's totally feasible. It's totally feasible. Right. The timeline's right there. And you know, I, I brought, this was brought up to me. I can't remember from whom, um, but you know how uh, many times these mammoth or, you know, these other Pleistocene sort of mammals are discovered at the edges of glaciers as they kind of melt out, you know, the bottoms of glaciers, essentially there may be Neanderthals or even Sasquatches in these glaciers somewhere. And I think that's a viable, uh, searching, maybe not method or, um, a model at least of like, of, uh, kind of skirting around the outside of these glaciers looking for what sort of organic remains might be melting out at that point. Yeah. See, there is an upside to climate change. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I live in the Pacific Northwest. It's getting warmer here too. Yeah. No. And that's really, that is one of my biggest kind of like interests, uh, having spent a lot of time in Alaska, so, I mean, the really depressing story, for example, is that, you know, you had all these explorers trying to find a Northwest pa uh, Passage back in the day. And it's like, well, guess what? Now there's a Northwest Passage because all of that um, Arctic sea ice is melting. And, and so there's people out right now mapping those areas for ship transit. You know, previously pristine Arctic environments are degrading. Um, but that is something that's occurring really heavily commercially in Russia, for example, and also in Alaska, uh, is going through the permafrost areas of the tundra that are melting um, and digging up uh, mammoth tusks and remains, etc. So, I mean, you can get $10,000 for a really nice mammoth tusk. Um, wow. there, yeah, there's also stories of people finding the meat that's been frozen and eating it. Cause I mean, like, why not? So yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of strange finds as this kind of warming, um, accelerates and there's more and more people out there because it's, you know, think of yourself as living in the outskirts of Russia, you know, and if you can, if you can find a mammoth test, that probably sets you for a year or maybe more. True that. Yeah. Yeah, and it would be a bit surprising if some sort of Neanderthal, you know, graveyard or something was discovered at some point. Um, that would just be mind-blowing and it would open up a lot of uh, interesting avenues of inquiry, I think is a very conservative way to say it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean, to I don't know about the state of it, what it would be like, but I mean, they are out there. It's a very big landmass that has a lot of animals. And I think, you know, I even think there's going to be a lot of... Um, Pleistocene age or even older cave systems that have iced over uh, that are going to probably reveal a lot of remains of animals and other things. 
Well, very cool. So, uh, you know, let's go on. Let's get into the beyond side of things. So I'll, I'll challenge <laughs> your left brain sensibilities a bit because I know you're interested in ghosts and things. Yeah. Then um, it's, you know, it's kind of cool to find a PhD who's so well grounded in science and such an expert in um, legitimate subjects, so to speak. Not that ghosts isn't uh, perhaps a legitimate subject, but it's clearly fringe. So um, what do you think about those sort of things? Do you have any sort of explanation or some sort of, uh, well, just generally, what do you think about them, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of ideas. I think my biggest question, though, Cliff, is like why we've never found like a disco raver ghost, you know? Hmm. There's always a, you know, they're always Victorian or whatever. And it's like, you know, I, uh, that's what I've always said. Right. <laughs> but there is, there is some modern ghosts. I've heard people say people dress like 80s. Oh, okay. Okay. Bring in, bring in fashion back. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I love spooky stories and like that kind of the Victorian tradition of sitting around and telling, you know, stories around the fire. And I think that's my main draw to ghosts less. So, you know, I'm not really one of those people that is all about going and doing ghost investigations. Um, you know, I'm all about wandering around a creepy place in the dark, but I'm, I'm not going to go and try and get AVPs or something. Um, so I, you know, I have some theories on paranormal stuff. And one again, goes back to our, that weird idea that we perceive time linearly, um, because that is how our brain is programmed to deal with everything that's coming at us. And some, there's a lot of stories about time slips. Um, you know, you know, it's embarrassing. I can't think of the term, but there's um, actually a term for seeing somebody like moments before they actually show up, and, and the term translates to a go before. And I, you know, I hear a lot of these ghost stories on podcasts, and a lot of it goes to. You know, I saw my husband walk through the door, you know, and then five minutes he actually did. And that's a really pervasive um, kind of a thing that's occurred for hundreds of years. And so I wonder if somehow ghost phenomenon has to do with we are actually seeing the past or maybe even the future. And maybe it's more likely to see really proximate things rather than far in the past. But there's, I mean, there's even reports of seeing ghost mammoths or other strange things that you wouldn't traditionally think of. I'm also really interested in the topics of little people. That is one of my favorite things. Um, I think it's because I am a little person maybe, <laughs> but uh, like literally I'm quite, you know, quite short, but um, those, those myths are so pervasive and there's a lot of really weird consistencies um, between reports and between traditions, um, you know, and, and I don't say I'm, I'm in the interdimensional, you know, boat on that, but I think it's a possibility. And I think we only perceive, you know, a few dimensions out of potentially 11. Um, and it's possible there are other things that every once in a while our brain might kind of slip into seeing you know, then we rationalize and it, go, and it goes away. But that's how a lot of the fairy phenomenon work is uh, people will sometimes come upon them and the creature realizes it's been seen and runs away, or they'll see something around a corner that also rushes away. So there's a lot of these really quick flitting, mischievous type creatures uh, that are reported in so many different venues. And I, I just really love those stories. Um, there's also Native American, a lot of Native American stories about when they arrived to whatever their, you know, region was where they were going to settle. Um, they were already populated by these small humans. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't understand what they are, but there's something just really interesting about those stories. Yeah, it's kind of one of the things I, I kind of hope isn't real. I have a whole category of, you know, this whole bucket that I put these things in, like things I don't want to be real, but might be. Because um, I've heard, you know, Bobo and I have heard from, um, what is it, what's his name, Lenny, up the, the Stony Nakoda guy, um, oh, yeah. who was abducted by one of these, by, by some little people when he was very young. And he's passed now, so we can't get that story from him. But he told it to Bobo and I, and I guess his father um, kind of yanked him away and saved him kind of towards the last minute. 
Um, when we were filming uh, Finding Bigfoot up in uh, Alaska, we, I, well, I spoke to um, a man and a woman. Um, he was native and she was white. And they both observed a little person. And to, to, I don't have a lot of little people's stories, um, but uh, they both described it as, you know, about two feet tall, maybe two and a half feet tall, um, kind of dark uh, brownish red skin, dressed in total native garb. And it was seen, and then it just immediately darted away at a lightning fast speed. So that, but sh- she was the only white person I've ever spoken to that has seen one. Um, the other people that I speak to who have, have knowledge of these or have, uh, have observations of these guys or whatever are always native people, indigenous people um, in either Canada or North or uh, America, or North America. But um, yeah, she was actually a white person that had a two person sighting of one of these things. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Thing, and and I, that that's the weird thing too about it. There's a lot of those reportings of those those creatures that have brown or red skin, which is is strange. Um, but you know, and I guess one of my personal experiences, it's not um, a ghost story per se. But uh, when I was a kid, I had these weird recurring dreams about literal stick figures around the house. They were about two and a half feet tall, and I mean, it just the dreams were just repeated over and over where there would be one of these little things and I would look at it and it would dart behind the couch or it would dart around the corner. And they terrified me. I don't know why I had them, um, but I kind of just tabled that and, you know, didn't really think about it. But um, I was listening to uh, the Expanded Perspectives podcast this year. I mean, this has been 27 years and there were all these people that reported seeing exactly what I had in these dreams, which is a small, a literal stick figure that was a couple feet tall. Um, although sometimes the height would vary and they would, they would dart away as soon as they were seen. And there's kind of that feeling of something sinister. Um, like it's watching you, but you don't, it didn't want you to see it. Um, and I have kind of a weird theory that, you know, and maybe it falls to the native American perspective too, of maybe we, we program our brains over time to put up these firewalls, um, you know, and I think we're barely able to perceive them. And over time, as you, you know, you get older, you're less and less able to see them, which is why a lot of, of kids maybe have these experiences and adults don't. Um, but it's almost like, I wonder if it's your brain barely being able to process what you're seeing, you know, kind of like when you, uh, back in the day when you'd play like an RPG and you'd have to watch the environment load, you know, over time. And, you know, maybe what we're able to see is just this very base part of this creature, uh, before we kind of, that experience shuts off. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's really eerie to me. And, uh, you know, like you said, Cliff, there's, there's so much malevolence in these reported with these small creatures from, you know, feelings of dread to just, outright horrible experiences. And, and I don't know why that would be, you know, it's, it's funny that a tiny creature, um, is more terrifying, you know, in terms of experience than seeing an eight foot Sasquatch. I talked to these Navajos. I talked to two of the three guys. They swear they're at this uh, campfire. They fell asleep at the fire. And he woke up. The one guy woke up to being dragged by two little people by his pants dragging him off into the bushes. He started screaming and kicking and it took the other guy to get up and run over there and had to grab some firewood and start bashing with it. And they had to fight the things off. They were like small, but they were really strong. Yeah. That's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Now, Melissa had this experience when she was young and you'd have to ask her the, the details next time you see her. But, um, she remembers being very young in her room and I'm, I'll, I'll take a stab, maybe three or four years old or something and seeing very tiny people, like six inch tall people in, in the room, kind of walking around, like wearing overalls or something ridiculous like that, like wearing red overalls, like Smurfs or something. Um, yeah. And, uh, and she always thought that was really weird and just kind of wrote it off as, you know, this weird, you know, trippy brain kid thing. Right. Cause kids imagine and experience a lot of things that adults don't. Um, and it was 20 something years later, she happened to mention them to her sister and her sister had the exact same experience, but they had never spoken about it for decades. And that's very eerie. I mean, this stick figure thing, I don't know if I've ever even told anyone um, until, you know, I heard that podcast and it was like, oh, wow, this isn't some just wild thing. It's it's a common experience. But yeah, I don't know, you know, and I don't know if it comes down to like location 
or whatever. Um, you know, the house I grew up in, I had lots of strange things happen to me. My parents never believed me, but I was a weird kid that I would always try and catch leprechauns. <laughs> I would set a <laughs> leprechaun trap, you know, on every St. Patrick's Day. And I have this really distinct memory. I had a friend over and it was St. Patrick's Day. We were about to go downstairs. The whole family was upstairs. We were about to go downstairs and we heard this kind of hollow, hollow noise. And we, I had this big red, like, it was like a giant exercise ball. Um, and I also happened to have a set of those like really chintzy, uh, like bow and arrow sets with the suction cup arrows. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, but they didn't stick to anything. They totally sucked. Um, I actually think I got those at like reptile gardens in rapid city, South Dakota or something, you know, very, very eighties, nineties. Uh, but we went down, we, we, it, it shocked us as to what this sound was. We went down there and there was an arrow that was stuck on the ball that something or someone had shot onto it and nobody was, it wasn't me. Nobody was downstairs. Uh, just a really weird, you know, almost kind of like a playing back at me for like trying to catch a leprechaun, leprechaun or something. But, um, I also heard really briefly when I was down there, the sounds of like a party, um, for just a couple seconds, glasses clinking, uh, people laughing and music in my my dog was actually on my bed and he looked up and kind of woofed at the other room. Um, weirdly enough, my mom was down there putting me to bed and she didn't hear it. We also had like a lamp that would go off and on and actually turned itself on when it was unplugged and, and that type. So there was some kind of weird activity, but it was all just so strange and just, you know, it's how do you even explain any of that? It doesn't make sense. And it's all kind of dumb when you think about it. <laughs> huh. Weird things happen to kids, and I think kids should be listened to for, uh, by and large. You know, they see things that perhaps the rest of us don't, and it's just just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not a reality, at least for them, or even beyond them. Kids are terrifying, especially when you read some of those like scary things that kids say. I don't know. I'm good on kids. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's like Stephen Colbert says. You know, like I don't trust kids. I think they're here to replace us. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what sort of projects? Do you have anything coming out that uh, our audience might want to be uh, paying attention to over the next couple of years or anything? Or what, what do you got going? Yeah, well, I've got a couple things. Um, I have a little cryptozoology shop on Etsy now that I'm trying to get going, but it's mainly for fun. So it's a Dr. Congress cryptid company. So yeah, it's a evidence kits um, for investigating kind of cryptozoological stuff so there's some of the kids have hydrocal um field notebooks measuring tape small little miniature microscope etc but other ones are more fun so i have a little kids evidence kit and a dark creature hunting kit which includes some <laughs> hand sharpened stakes uh some jars of rice and holy water um in case you want to go out and look for dog manner or vampires which i really don't advise but at least you'll be prepared. Well, they certainly shouldn't do it without your equipment. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Although I don't hold myself liable if you do get attacked by a dog, man. I should probably put that on the disclaimer. Couldn't um, hurt. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I, you, you sell hand-cut wooden stakes. I do. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> real real leather handles. They're, very, they're quite luxurious. Wow. Turns wow. a new level. I know. I know. I try. Um, so yeah, I have that going, which is kind of fun. Um, Greg Lawson, uh, who goes by the paranormal detective, um, him and I are working on, well, at some point, uh, a card game or a board game about cryptids. So hopefully that'll be out in the next year or so. And, you know, it's funny, I don't do, I don't do too much cause I try to just enjoy, um, these kind of side hobbies. Uh, but I am working on a book, uh, about mermaids and it's, it's about a biologist looking at mermaids and our relationship to the ocean, um, as well as some kind of fun anecdotes about sideshow gaffes in Fiji mermaids. Um, and you know, why I think the biological mermaid as we, as we see it isn't possible, but also detailing the history of that kind of phenomenon over time. Um, so hopefully I can get that going. I almost had the proposal accepted and they backed out at the last minute. So 
I tend to have find ways to make myself extremely busy, but my, one of my goals this winter is to push that out again. <laughs> and all that along with being married, managing a property that you live on and being a, a legitimate employed scientist. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's all. And, you know, um, Cliff, I think I told you too, I've been volunteering lately to try and get animals out of the the burn zones in Oregon. Um, A lot of animals were left behind because that evacuation happened at night. So we've got a pretty awesome crew of us going out there and trying to to save mainly kitties um, that are just abandoned and their owners are missing them very much. So, yeah, I don't. Oh, and I also sell rain barrels. So I don't know. I don't really slow down very well. Apparently not. I'm glad you found a little bit of time to talk to us today because it sounds like no wonder it was so hard to schedule something. Yeah, I know. I'm just a little, I can't decide if I'm ADD or just overly passionate about a hundred things. Maybe that's the same. I'm not sure. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. So they're both. Yeah, probably. The perfect mixture. Yeah. Well, Shay, thank you very much for spending some time with us. It sounds like you're insanely busy. So uh, your time is even more valuable than I expected. And um, your knowledge is always appreciated. Um, You're kind of one of my go-to people when I need something analyzed that's beyond my ability. Um, And I just want to thank you for not only coming on and not only being interested in the subjects that we are, but also just being a good friend. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Shay. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bobo and Cliff. It was really fun to kind of get weird with you, especially because it's spooky season. So um, it was a pleasure. Pleasure is all ours. We'll have you on again as soon as you have something else to share with us. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. Bye. 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 That was cool. She's rad. Yeah. I've I've only seen her at weird things, paranormal conventions and Bigfoot things. She's a weird woman, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, legitimately grounded in science, totally left brain with a good dose of right. Yeah. She's just wonderful. But what, like, I think it's easy to say she's one of my best friends. I just, just love her. She's great. Yeah. You always speak very highly of her. Absolutely. You know, and she's helped me with analyses before. Um, she's analyzed vocalizations using special software um, that she has access to. Um, whenever I have any biological question, you know, I, I, she's one of my go-tos. Um, She's, she's, she's just a good friend and a valuable resource for me. All right, Cliff, you take it easy. And all you people listening out there, thanks for listening. Hit like and share. And until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond. That's an N in the middle. And tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 